Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 15. In this episode, I talk with Dorothy Bishop about developmental language disorder, history, adequacy, terminology, comorbidities, and so much more. This conversation is one in a five-part series on developmental language disorder, also known as DLD, released this week in honor of DLD Awareness Day, which this year is on Friday, October 18th. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. Well, Dorothy, Professor Bishop, I appreciate you joining me for the See, Hear, Speak podcast, and I'll have you start by introducing yourself. Well, it's great to be here, and uh, I'm really excited by the podcast, but um, just to say who I am, I'm Dorothy Bishop, and I'm a professor of developmental neuropsychology at the University of Oxford in the UK, with a particular interest in developmental language disorder. Great. I'm very excited to speak with you as someone who's studied multiple uh, communication disorders, such as developmental language disorder, dyslexia, ADHD, and speech sound disorder. I've very much appreciated your study of the intersection of many of those. And for the listeners, um, I would like you to tell us about those disorders that you've studied and how they relate to each other. And in particular, for this podcast series, I'm very interested in your description of developmental language disorder, or DLD, and how DLD relates to other disorders such as autism, speech sound disorder, and dyslexia. Okay, um, that's, a, that's a big chunk, but uh, I'll do my best. So um, I started out way back in the 1970s, I believe, um, studying children's language disorders. And we had um, some special schools for children with serious speech and language disorders, which I visited to do my doctoral studies. And I think um, at the time, I thought that this was a very clear-cut condition. But I think the longer I've studied uh, children with language disorders, it's become really clear that it's not a very tightly defined disorder with very clear boundaries. And that many children have problems that start veering into the autistic spectrum. Um, and there's sometimes real debate as to whether a child should be diagnosed with autism or with DOD. Um, then you've got the whole issue of children who have problems with speech sound production and again, when I started out, I think that was thought to be quite separate. But what I kept finding was that there were children who were classified as having speech disorders. But when you assess them, they actually had problems with oral language and comprehension and things like that as well. And so, again, there was sort of some uh, overlap. Um, and you can have, obviously, a speech sound disorder that doesn't involve broader problems with oral language. Uh, but this is the thing. You can also have, of course, a language disorder that doesn't involve a speech disorder. But there's a quite a lot of children who are in the middle there with, with a mixture of the two. Uh, and similarly with reading problems. So um, I've done quite a lot of work um, looking at literacy as well as oral language in children uh, with DLD. And typically we find pretty poor rates of literacy and in some children really serious problems. Um, but again, it's not everyone. So so that's one of the things I've been interested in is to see how far uh, you can distinguish children who have oral language problems with written language problems. And then what about these children that actually do learn to read despite oral language problems? And then on the other side, the children who have problems with learning to read but don't have oral language problems with them. So I think the main thing is that you, I think a lot of the, our ideas of these very distinct disorders have come because each type of disorder is studied by one type of professional that tends to just assess one type of thing. And it's only when you start really assessing them more broadly, you find that quite often there's multiple things going on. And... Um, it does indeed even extend further, so I certainly think attentional problems, motor problems, are not uncommon in children with DLD. I've also found that interesting, too, because, it, like you said, it has to do with the professionals that are studying each of these impairments. And yeah. even in our curriculum, you know, we have 
a, a, you know, a class on speech sound disorder, and then we have a class you take on language disorder, a yes. class you take on autism. So it seems that when I was a student, I really had this feeling that they were quite separate. But immediately when I started clinical practice, I realized that there was that there's a whole child there and that it can vary yes. along those continuums. I used to also joke that because I study also the intersection between language and reading, I would say when I was at a reading conference, if someone said, what do you study? I would say language disorder. And then if I was mm -hmm. at a language conference, I would say reading disorder. And mm -hmm. that was very acceptable. Uh, so <laughs> I do think it's like there's these, um, it's rare to have someone who studies all of the intersections. And I really appreciate that about your work. You've started um, a public awareness campaign around DLD. And I'm wondering if you mm. can tell us a bit about the impetus, the story behind that advocacy. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really that after, you know, literally decades of um, studying children with language disorders, I was getting fed up with the fact that people were saying this is quite common. So there was uh, Bruce Tomlin's epidemiological study coming out saying that 7% of six-year-olds have this, and yet nobody knew about it. I mean, this was just ridiculous. I found if I was trying to get funding, you know, um, the research councils and people who give you research funding, you could be pretty sure that they would have heard of autism or dyslexia, but they'd never heard of children's language disorders. And um, just the lay, lay people you interact with. I have my sort of taxi driver story, which was, you know, I was in a taxi and I had my aha moment when the taxi driver said, what do you work on? And I tried to explain about children's language disorders and he was utterly baffled. But then I had to say, well, it's a bit like autism and he knew autism and it's a bit like dyslexia. Well, he knew what that was. And I found myself thinking, why is it that we work on a condition that is completely invisible in the general world? And it's and I also felt it was, you know, really a, a matter of being important to advocate for these children and their families, because if you're not recognized, it just makes life a lot more much harder to get resources as well as for researchers to get research funding. So that was really why I started thinking we should do something. And fortunately, I was really lucky that I had um, some colleagues who uh, felt very much the same and we were all good mates anyway. And so we got together and formed this group to create what was originally called Rally, the Raising Awareness of Language Learning Impairments, which had me, Maggie Snowling, who works more on reading problems, but has also sort of gone over the boundaries. Um, Gina Conti Ramsden uh, in Manchester and Courtney Norbury, Royal Holloway, and Becky Clark, who's a practicing speech and language therapist. Um, and we were able to get together with uh, one of Becky's friends who was actually working in public relations, who gave us really good advice about how to run this campaign, which was completely differently from what I would have had in mind to run a campaign. It's a very loud noise, but it's, I'm afraid it's rain on the roof. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> you <can hear laughs> no problem. <laughs> we, you know what? I, we do this podcast, rain or shine. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're actually in a building that uh, is not the building I started my career in because that was condemned because of asbestos. Oh, oh no. And we all had to move out. So we're in a, a sort of makeshift building, which is quite nice, but does have this roof that every time it rains, you get a very loud noise. So that's what's happening at the moment. <laughs> I think it's the environment clapping on our your DLD efforts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now, with you had rally start, but now it's rattle. Is it did it transition? It's now rattled. Okay. Yeah. So what happened was um, that we uh, realized. I mean, this again was re we really helped uh, by Natalie Orange, who was our this PR person who advised us, who would ask us a lot of questions, and she'd say things like, "Well, if you want to have a PR campaign, you know, you need to be able to sort of say." you know, one in so many children has this uh, condition and, you know, these are the defining characteristics. And I realized that we, you know, people wouldn't agree about this because, and they would, and even worse, couldn't agree what to call it. So at the time I started, it was uh, developmental, it was really specific developmental language disorder that people talked about, although some people in those days talked about developmental aphasia. And then about, I guess, in the 1980s, people started to use specific language impairment, particularly in the US. And I think Larry Leonard had an impact on that. Um, and I moved to that because everybody seemed to be using SLI. But then um, there was a sort of backlash against SLI from some people who started to think it was really a bit of a misnomer because the problems were not nearly as specific as the textbooks would have you believe. And so even when we started 
rally. We called it language learning impairments because we didn't really, we weren't really committed to SLI, but at the same time, we didn't know what else to put. Uh, but we had as one of our goals to sort out the terminological mess, and we hadn't done that. We started trying to uh, raise awareness, but we still had this massive problem that the terminology was so confused and confusing. So that was like the next step that we felt we had to deal with. Um, and so we did a study to try and um, get consensus. So that probably was one of the biggest barriers to public awareness then was really just getting consistent consensus. So can you tell the listeners about the process by which you got that consensus? Yeah, um, so that was, uh, this This was a, a whole um, succession of quite chance events, in fact, that, that led to this. Uh, and one was that I met um, a person who's a professor of, um, oh, I can never remember the precise title, but something like, you know, she's a, she's a family doctor professor, so mm. professor of um, Oh, she's going to kill me for not remembering the details, but it's Trish Greenhouse, who's a very wonderful professor working in the medical field, who um, is here in Oxford. In fact, when I first met her, she was elsewhere, but she's since moved to Oxford, which was great. And she does a lot of research um, on uh, things that are more qualitative, uh, using qualitative as well as quantitative methods. Um, and we were discussing uh, this and that, and she was talking, asking me about what I do and I said we have this problem that I'm working on a condition that's common but nobody can agree what to call it and she said well what you need is uh, to use the Delphi method which I had never heard of uh, but she had used it herself and could give us some advice on it um, and so with Maggie Snowling who's also in Oxford and her and my statistician Paul Thompson and me we decided to run a study where we would use this method which is a process for achieving consensus where you start with a whole set of statements about uh, which there might be some debate uh, and get a lot of experts together to rate them and give justice for their ratings and uh, you then can collate all that information and feed it back to people so they can really see are they on their own are they a bit of an outlier or have, where there is consensus if they are an outlier it's up to them to possibly um, update uh, what they've written about it and try and persuade people or to perhaps go with the flow um, and the beauty of this method is there's two things that are very good about it one is that you can do it online so people can take the time to think about what they want to say and the other is it's anonymous um, so if I had previously thought we might have some meeting and try and get some consensus building in a day with a whole of, load of important people who knew about this stuff in a room, and I think we, you know, I could already tell that would be a disaster because you'd have very important people with very opinionated views sort of dominating and trying to argue their corner, and you'd probably just end up with a lot of disagreement. Whereas with this method, you know, it's more reflective and people really can't pull rank. Everybody gets heard, and we deliberately went for a fairly wide-ranging panel of experts that included predominantly speech and language therapists, as we call them, or speech language pathologists, as you would call them, um, and predominantly from the UK, but also quite a few people from other English-speaking countries, including experts from the US, um, and some people who were more from coming from education, psychology, uh, medicine, and then some people representing uh, advocate groups for families affected with disorders. So there was sort of a, quite a broad um, spectrum of opinion. And uh, we managed to go through two rounds of this Delphi process twice. So we started just thinking, we're going to agree on who is it we're talking about? So what are the defining conditions? And then we moved on to try and decide what label should we use? Um, so it was reasonably successful. Uh, it, it was quite remarkable. We had about 56 people, I think, on the panel. And to sort of get these people coming together was um, quite a feat. Um, but I think the main people did agree it was important, even though the, thing, the one thing that was really controversial was the, was the terminology. I mean, that was the hardest thing. We could get people to agree about a lot of other things, but getting people to uh, accept that we should have a, a common label um, Everybody agreed that that was really important for communication, but there was sort of quite a lot of battling about what that should be. And it was much, much harder, but arguments were made in all directions. 
Um, so we did end up though with developmental language disorder or DLD as the agreed term, um, which has been accepted by most of the people who um, were on the panel and is, I'm very pleased to see it's been sort of picked up uh, quite widely uh, around the world and I think has had the, to my mind, rather un unanticipated benefit that not only are the researchers and uh, the clinicians agreeing more, but I think it has seemed to give a huge boost to just general recognition of the condition as well, which is great. Absolutely. And how can you, to give the listeners an idea, how long did that process take? It wasn't too bad. I mean, it, um, the hard bit was the thinking bit, the actual doing it. I mean, once you've assembled your panel, we did this on a shoestring. We didn't actually have proper funding for I it. We just about that. <laughs> used some existing, I mean, you know, little corners of, of funds. But I mean, unfortunately, I had funding for me and for my statistician. So we were able to um, do it very economically. Um, I mean, setting up the questions and setting up the sort of, uh, it's really just a simple survey software that you can use to set, set up the uh, thing. And then you, you really don't want to give people a very long time to, you know, give their responses. You want them to give them enough time that they are thoughtful about it. But I think we've said to people, you know, if you can respond in three weeks or so, um, then we had to look at the results and, and sort of try to integrate them before feeding back. Um, and that was the thing that I did with Maggie Snowling. So we didn't put in our own views, but we tried to absorb the views of other people and identify what were the sticking points. Quite often when people disagreed, it was not that they really disagreed. It was more that the way something had been worded was sort of making them interpret it one way or another. And so it was quite often possible to get better agreement just by understanding the reasons why people were going one way or the other. Um, but that took a bit of time. But I think we got the both phases. I mean, we did phase one and then we had a pause and then we did phase two. I think we did it in about 18 months. Wow. But the actual time for getting people to respond wasn't more than about three weeks once it was set up. But it was more than having to go through the second round and think about it and, and then write the final papers, which had 56 co-authors. So you can imagine was not trivial getting everybody to agree. Wow. I think 18 months is lightning speed considering what you were tackling, uh, getting terminology after decades and getting people to have a consensus and also thinking about the multiple countries that came forward with this consensus mm. and the multiple authors. I think that's, that's uh, phenomenal. I, I, and and I mean, people, these... people were saying to us that, you know, we should, should we extend it to other countries, non-English speaking yes. countries? And of course, in theory, the answer is yes, but we felt it was enough of a problem to just get the English speaking people to agree. But there's now some people in other countries where other languages are spoken who are using it as a model. Oh, that's so with great. luck, um, they will come to their own consensuses or not, as the case may be. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's that's really nice extension. I think these papers also serve as such a nice literature review on the key characteristics of DLD because you had to synthesize so much work that was out there. And I'm wanting to talk about a few of those key pieces from my point of view. And, and of course, please raise any other key pieces you think. But one thing that struck me was how you tackled the early diagnosis aspect and what you found about the variability of language and the reliability maybe of diagnosing DLD early. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we found was that there were quite a lot of people, particularly those coming from the education uh, side, uh, who were one of the barriers to talking about DLD is they really don't like the word disorder. And I think there's some justification for that. You, you know, you stick the label disorder on a child and it, and it really seems medical, it seems serious and so on. So I think we came quick, quite rapidly to the conclusion that we were only going to include under DLD children for whom there was, uh, you know, a sort of persistent problem of some severity and of real functional impairment. Um, and we would have to rely on what we knew about prognostic factors um, to identify those early. But there is quite a lot of longitudinal literature that allows you to sort of pick up which of the children that are likely to have something severe and long term. So we really didn't want to have the sort of classic late talkers who might just be a bit slow to get going. Um, and there's also quite a lot of, of preschool children. I mean, I've done longitudinal studies where we started with them at four. 
And there are children who are presenting with particularly expressive problems who by the time they're five and a half, they're pretty much in the normal range. And so we thought those sorts of children, we're not saying they shouldn't get help or they don't exist, but we, we felt they should not be categorized as the same as DLD because we felt the word disorder was just one that should be reserved for, for longer term problems. So um, that, that, that was a sort of interplay really between the label and the diagnostic criteria was that we felt um, that we should focus on children who had longer term problems without, um, so, so they, they, it may be possible to identify these children very young, but really predominantly if you've got a child who's got, for example, um, notable comprehension problems at a very early age, or who's got very limited um, speech production or you know, coming out with one word utterances at the age of three or four, that would suggest that you probably are picking up DLD very early. But that if a child is um, just perhaps not producing uh, fully intelligible long sentences at the age of three, I think we would say we wouldn't call that DLD, but we would not say that it doesn't merit some attention, but that it's, it's not the same thing. So um, we would use some, and people have said, what terminology would you then use? And I think I would be inclined to just say language difficulties or something more uh, descriptive mm -hmm. rather than something that sounds more like a, a diagnostic category. In the US, I know that it's commonly used developmental delay as more broad um, mm. in the educational setting. So that's, I, I know we, there's definitely differences in educational setting uh, diagnostics versus uh, the clinical yeah. setting and, and research setting. Um, the delay, delay in the UK tends to mean um, intellectual uh, disability. Yeah, that's, that is, that brings me to um, my next question, actually, because I think <laughs> from my point yeah. of view, one of the most uh, controversial aspects uh, about the papers and the literature is gathered was this idea of nonverbal IQ. So how does nonverbal IQ play into the diagnosis of DLD or SLI. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I mean, um, so I was sort of brought up with the idea of uh, specific language impairment or specific developmental language disorder as being very much defined in terms of a mismatch between nonverbal and verbal abilities. And so that the child had to have um, a normal range nonverbal ability and then a significant language problem. And I think what uh, worried me for a long time was that this did seem to be an artificial category and that it didn't really reflect the children I was seeing very often. In fact, there were very few children who met that sort of criterion. Um, and more often you'd have a child who had a clearly got significant problems with language and the nonverbal ability would be in the normal range, but not massively discrepant with it. Um, and these children, in the UK were quite often finding themselves in a bit of a no man's land because, because they didn't have the big discrepancy. The funding agencies who provide intervention would be saying, well, no, they haven't got the right sort of problem. And that, then they'd be left with no intervention at all. Um, and there were two bits of evidence that concern me here. One is that there really is no evidence that these children respond any worse to intervention than children where there is a big discrepancy. Um, and indeed their prognosis from longitudinal studies I've done is that bit worse. So you could argue these children are more in need of some sort of help. And then I think the killer for me was when I did twin studies, because I'm interested in the genetics of language disorders. Um, and I would find two identical twins, one of whom had the big discrepancy and one of whom didn't, but they both had the language problem. Uh, and they seemed very similar uh, in many ways. And clearly this would really go against the idea that it's a completely different sort of condition depending on what your nonverbal ability is. So I think now what we've what we've come up against are people who are saying, well, are you therefore just saying that any child, you know, with any severe uh, uh, intellectual disability or something would be included? And we're not, we're, we're, uh, because the, we do make a distinction if there's a child has some sort of syndrome, something like Down syndrome, or if they meet criteria for intellectual disability which is more severe um, and tends to mean that the child is not likely to be able to uh, carry out activities of daily living independently and things like that, you would not say that's DLD. But it's more these children who may not do on a non-verbal IQ test, but are still within normal limits by any regular psychology assessment, but just don't necessarily have the big mismatch with language skills that we would say they've got a language problem 
as far as we know, there's no reason to suppose they won't respond to intervention. Why should we ignore their language problem? Uh, because they don't meet this mismatch criterion. So that, that was really the logic behind it. And it was seen very much, I mean, this was a matter of some debate in the Catalyze panel, but it was seen very much as an equity issue that there were children who were being denied intervention because they didn't meet a rather artificial criterion that had been imposed by researchers who had nice tidy minds about how children should be, but were actually therefore excluding quite large numbers of children who we felt you know, did merit some sort of help. That makes sense. And I, I think um, in studying these data myself, I have been struck by the uh, continuous nature of the data. I mean, we expect yeah. that, you know, these conditions or these uh, abilities would be on a continuous measure. So if you have a study where you say, okay, this is a child with SLI and to be a child with SLI, you have to have, let's say, if you're being more liberal and these are the, the studies I've traditionally done is that you say they don't qualify for intellectual disability. So they have a nonverbal IQ at 70 or above. But then when you go out and find these children, it's hard, it's hard to really see a difference between a child who has a 70 IQ, 71 versus 69. Um, mm. And that's an arbitrary cut point that you make. Um, or even more so, many studies make the arbitrary cut point of 85, for instance. So then yeah. you have kids with 86 versus 84 on a nonverbal IQ. And but I, to, be, to be honest with you, it's, it's not even that. I mean, when I came in the field, it wasn't so much that you had it. I mean, we, we've all moved to that sort of cut point of 85 or 80 in most cases. Um, but when I came into the field, it was you actually had to have a measurable mismatch. With oh, I see, a discrepancy. You have, like, if you measured the two things on the same scale, you would have to have, I mean, ICD, one of the classification systems, says you should have a 15-point discrepancy. So if your language skills came in at about sort of 70, you'd have to have an, a nonverbal ability of at least 85. And if your language skills came in at 85, you'd have to have a nonverbal ability of about 100. Mm. So there was this notion that you actually had to have a measurable discrepancy uh, rather than just meeting some arbitrary cutoff. Mm. Now, I think most of the children that we are now including uh, who might not have been included under some previous definitions have more got nonverbal abilities in the 80s. But certainly in the UK, you would have people arguing they should not have help because they didn't have this big mismatch. It's almost like that, that it goes back to the idea that nonverbal IQ is a sense of potential. Right. So yes. if you're at yes. your potential and I, you know, we see this parallel in dyslexia and luckily we've moved yes. away from that exactly. as well. It's exactly um, the same arguments for children with reading problems yeah. where, again, um, it can be much easier to get help for kids who have uh, poor reading in the context of an IQ of 100 than children who are poor readers in the context of an IQ of 85. And I, I know as a clinician, it was so frustrating uh, with when I work with children who had a reading disability, I would just have to wait a few years till their scores unfortunately dropped in yeah. reading to then see that discrepancy and that just wasted that time. So uh, yeah, I definitely re recall those period, that period of discrepancy, which is slightly different than the arbitrary cut point. Yeah, aspect but I think, I think, you know, the, the main thing is that we felt that uh, language is not determined by nonverbal ability. In fact, sometimes it's the other way around to some extent, because what you certainly do see is as children get older, unfortunately, children with language problems, often the nonverbal ability does decline. And I think it's that the content of nonverbal IQ tests tends to involve more implicit verbalization, even if it's not explicitly a verbal test. And so it's not, you know, it's not sort of some constant measure of your potential in any way, shape or form. Um, I think the other thing that's affected this debate is that I, like many other people, have been quite interested in trying to find what are the core characteristics of children's language problems. And if you want to do that, it's quite useful to have a discrepancy definition and because then you can say what's the correlate of the language problem and be fairly confident that it's not just something due to more general nonverbal difficulties. But that's a researcher's definition, which isn't, you know, people have taken definitions that are useful for research and then sort of applied them, um, or they have certainly, again, I don't know how about in the US, but in the UK, they've been picked up and used in a way to deny children services, which has been really quite pernicious. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen, I think that in the US, um, I don't necessarily think that children are denied services according to, at least for the speech and language. Uh, they have this category of speech language impairment and they can, as speech pathologists, qualify uh, children. But I think what has happened here is that you don't have a connection between the research findings and what's happening in practice. So if you ask yeah. a clinician, 
oh, have you read the latest research article on specific language impairment? Does that affect the children you see? They say, I don't have those children on my caseload, or I'm not sure if I have them on my caseload because uh, even to make matters worse here, we called it SLI, speech and language impairment. So then it was even more of an issue of making that connection. Um, and, And I think here we also have the issue of, you know, how to even diagnose language impairment based on multiple different t- assessments and different arbitrary yeah. points. And I interviewed yeah. Atlanta Plant on the podcast to t- talk a bit about that. But I think that's also been a huge issue of what tests to use and what criterion yeah. to use. And one of the things that I've had a lot of people, you know, communicating with me is they think because we've done the catalyzed thing that we can come up with some sort of, you know, absolutely worked out uh, protocol for diagnosis. And of course we can't, it's far too early. I mean, it just, one of the things that our exercise really emphasized was that although we do have some good standardized tests there's still we don't really have very good measures of functional impairment which is a key thing according to our definition I mean I have seen children when I've just routinely testing kids that do badly on a standardized test but actually nobody's worried about them and they do seem to be fine and possibly just a bit inattentive or something and then you get other kids who have quite severe problems but might pass those tests but you feel the tests are just not quite particularly kids with more sort of pragmatic difficulties may pass uh, a standardized test and still have problems so I think um, you know we need better measures to to look at the whole range of how children are using their communication skills Um, but I think that the the core idea we had was that it's not just going to be particular I I would say I'm a great fan of standardized tests often revealing things that you might not have been aware were going on, particularly when children have got comprehension problems. But at the same time, I, I would be very averse to sort of just saying, well, if you score below this on this test, you've got a DLD. I think you'd need to look at it in a broader way than that. I do think that the next frontier is that uh, functional outcomes and trying to understand yeah. and quantify more thoroughly yeah. the functional outcomes. But, you know, the listener may think, okay, well, there's you know, there was this consensus that occurred and now we have this public awareness campaign, which is gaining a ton of momentum across the world, the rattle campaign. Um, I've been a part of the North American version, dldandme.org. But that would, that would, I think, give a misrepresentation because to me, the debate is still continuing a bit, uh, whether to call these children DLD and SLI. So I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about why you think that debate is still continuing and what are your thoughts as we move forward? Um, I think it's still continuing in part because there is no ideal solution. I mean, I, I've, ri- I've written about this, you know, that uh, we've come up with DLD. DLD has tons of things wrong with it, you know, as a term. And I think one of the problems is the children are very heterogeneous. It implies that you've got a clear cut single disorder. Um, it's really describing a sort of broad area. Um, and I think the other thing is that there's people who've been researching SLI for years who've got a lot invested in that. Um, and they, one of the things, arguments I've heard is, well, if we drop the term, we lose all the insights we've had from studying SLI. I think that's a valid argument because I think, in, in a sense, the way we've defined DLD will encompass SLI as traditionally informed. So anything that was true of SLI is likely to apply to DLD. It's just that DLD is a broader category. But I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's really problematic um, trying to get the terminology right when you're dealing with a condition that is very fuzzy on the boundaries and uh, we don't have a very tight definition of it anyway and the children are varied and some of them have a more additional problems, some don't. So I think it's understandable that you can, I mean, that's what we had going through our catalyzed exercise. And in fact, we have got everything from this exercise online open including all the comments on all the questions I don't think anybody's ever looked them up but we have got them on open science framework so that you could actually read we didn't have to anonymize things to make sure people who were responding were not identified but you can read the sorts of arguments that people were putting forward for and against different terminology and you know these are intelligent people with very good views so it's it's certainly not simple to just say we're going to get and I was very uncertain before we started this exercise how it would end up and in fact I was quite keen to invent a completely new term like language learning impairment 
and everybody hated it so it didn't go anywhere but I thought that might be one way forward to just drop everything from the past but I think that probably would have been even worse and that would have also cut us off from uh, the medical profession because in the DSM it is language disorder and in the ICD which is used more in Europe which is the World Health Organization they have developmental language disorders so we are more in line at least with the medical profession with the DLD um, but SLI, I mean, I can see why some people uh, are wedded to it, and I think it's mainly for more historical reasons than anything else. Um, although I do think that some people also feel they still believe that there is this difference between the children with a very specific problem and those um, who might, the broader group who might be included in DLD. I, I would be evidence for that because I, I just don't think it's there from any of the research domains that I've looked at. You know, I think talking to clinicians, too, it's helpful to think about from their perspective. It's not that we're arguing that these kids don't exist, there's not problems, that we don't need to you know, create awareness, that we don't need to make sure that they're treated. It is more of a, a, an issue of semantics and how to bridge that gap between research and practice. And so these yeah. kids exist. It's, that's not what we're debating. And sometimes I did hear a clinician tell me that once. And I and. And so I think that's one thing to always kind of keep in mind. I do when I do these presentations. And I also try yeah. to link to the research when I work now on my papers that involve children that would more qualify from a traditional SLI diagnosis. I always say, you know, developmental language disorder without intellectual disability. And then I have a footnote to try to tie to the research. Like, you know, some of the studies, these children have been called SLI, some are DOD refer to the Catalyst papers because I, I do think it's on us as researchers to bridge that gap between yeah. the work and um, make sure it's pushed forward in, in the appropriate way. But I would be clear that, I mean, DLD is always without intellectual disability. Yes, so yes. If, if, you, if you have intellectual disability, right. you would not be a case of DLD. And I think there's some misunderstanding. Yes, it is, it is, because I thought... Yeah, yeah. They think we've got we're everybody in, but we, we say specifically you would exclude intellectual disability. You would include autism. Uh, you would include children with a known biomedical syndrome. Yeah. Um, That's really helpful, Dorothy, because I think that I, I do, as a researcher myself, get confused about do I say without to make it really clear, or do I say with if I include with the children? So it sounds like you're well, saying then that it, then it would be then it wouldn't be developmentally. Then it would be language disorder with intellectual disability. Yes. So we make that distinction between language disorder which is the overarching category in which DLD sits as a subcategory um, but you can then have language disorder with intellectual disability with autism and so on so it, it's sort of emphasizing that a child may have a language disorder with some other condition and again this shouldn't be seen as a reason to deny them intervention yes. provided there's some effective intervention there um, there's a sense sometimes that we with this condition, as opposed to many other conditions, there's you know, a tremendous desire to keep out as many children as possible. And it's, and it's a bit weird, really. Mm -hmm. um, like pure blood you need or something, you yeah. know? <laughs> I guess that's, you know, then that means to me that all the research done on specific language impairment that included children with a cut point that was maybe more liberal in nonverbal IQ, like 70, those are just the kids that have DLD now. Those, that's yeah, the yeah. definition. Yeah, yeah. And if you used 85, though, that's where it gets a little tricky because that's not really the intellectual. So some states have SLI with 85 as the cut point. That well, they would still, they would be, to my mind, they would be very much classic DLD. I mean, they haven't got the, to me, this is the problem. I mean, to me, SLI was meaning a real discrepancy, not just, not yeah. just meeting some lower threshold, but it sort of morphed into something different in the many years that I've worked in the field. And I think that's because if it didn't, you wouldn't find any children. Yeah. Very, very few cases who have that mismatch. Right. But that's how it started. It started that you actually had to have a mismatch. And I never worked in the mismatch, uh, you know, in terms of a researcher. Right. No. So I never, <laughs> luckily, never had to deal with that. As a clinician, I did. But when I came back for the PhD, that had, you know, dissipated a bit. So um, what do you think is on the horizon for research on DLD? I mentioned the functional outcomes. What do you see as uh, the big research and clinical questions on the horizon? Um, I think. I think there's a huge neglect of adults with DLD. We know very, very little about them. Um, so, and there's a, a really strong difference between autism and DLD in this regard. So um, we have done some follow-up studies 
of kids that I saw when they were younger and it's fascinating. Um, but when we've tried to follow people up with DLD, they, they're very hard to find. They disappear into the woodwork. You really can't locate them. They don't tend to respond to correspondence. Whereas people with autism are much more engaged and families of kids with autism are much more engaged. And so I think that these are people who find communication difficult. They often have poor literacy skills and it's really hard to uh, engage with them. But I think we do, one of the things that I'm increasingly being asked about after the RADL campaign is, is how do we identify people with DLD and, and, and adulthood and, and what are their needs and what are their outcomes? Um, so I, I think there's a handful of longitudinal studies, but that um, we have tended to think of this as a child condition and uh, quite a lot of speech and language therapists, I think, assume that they just sort of get better as they get older. But in fact, there's quite a lot of adults out there who have these persisting problems and we need to know more about what are their needs and you know, how can we help them function in society. I'm also, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm also very interested in um, their self-esteem and how it affects their choices over time. And yeah. I think the shame that can be associated with yeah. having a language disorder, I, I would like to see more research in that area yeah. as well. I mean, the other area I'm particularly interested in is, is really just uh, getting better methods for intervention. So I've spent many, many years trying to determine are these really auditory problems at heart, so influenced by the work of Paula Talal, and come to the conclusion that there often are some auditory problems, but they don't seem to be causal as far as I can see. Uh, they seem to be just another associated problem. Um, and I've been interested in looking at sort of memory problems. And so, and then I've sort of come to the point of thinking, well, actually, we're, we're continually trying to find something that might explain the poor language skills. But actually, this is a problem with language learning and that it's much more interesting to do studies which actually look at the process of learning itself. And if we did such studies and we could understand what are the factors that really determine what makes something easy or difficult for a child to learn, uh, this could also be a huge benefit for targeting our interventions better. Um, so I think that's, that's where there's a huge need. Um, I don't think I'm going to solve that one before I retire, but um, I think that would be a good line to take uh, investigating just how manipulation, I mean, we're looking, starting trying to look at things like if you are even just doing a boring you know, vocabulary learning task where you're trying to teach a child new words, we don't know really basic things about how the timing or the spacing of, of presentations affects children with language problems. Um, and you know, what is the optimal way? Should we bang on and teach them one thing and only go on to something else when they've learned that one thing? Should be very boring, but might be more effective. Or should we give them mixed items and so on? And there's a bit of literature on this in things like second language learning, which I think would be quite interesting to hook up with. But it may be that for children with language disorders, different conditions are needed. And that may be exactly why they've got a language disorder, that they don't um, perhaps follow the normal course of events when they're learning to learn new words or indeed learning grammatical constructions. It does seem like our intervention now is based on more, just give them more, more of the same, yes. more of the same. It's more dosage, but I agree. I've been very interested in the research and have done my own research on word learning and the characteristics that influence word learning, yeah. but also all that work on statistical learning yeah. and what yeah. that looks like, um, working memory aspects. And uh, you know, I have a colleague here, Yael Arbel, who does work on feedback processing. So even yeah. do we tell them they're wrong? Do we tell them they're right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot yeah. of really new work in that area. And I think it's, it's weird that I think what happened was, um, again, I've got this very long perspective over many, many years. And when I first got interested in the field, I got the impression that such intervention as was going on was very much sort of rote learning. And that was completely abandoned because people found you could teach children by rote learning, but it didn't generalize to the real world at all. And so people went to a much more naturalistic sort of approach um, and embedding intervention in naturalistic interactions and things like that. But in a sense, there are some things where it might be useful to go back now, especially that we've got computers that can make rote learning a bit more fun. There are questions about whether some things might be, such as new learning and new vocabulary, there might be a role for treating it in a more rote learning fashion. But if so, then you would really want to know under what conditions would that optimize. And certainly I'm not advocating that we should bore children to yeah. death 
learning things that they then can't use in real life. I think you always need a mixture of things. But um, I just feel, I, I, I feel I've misconceived SLI for, or DLD as I'd now call it for many years as possibly a percept auditory perceptual problem. And now I think, no, it was a learning problem all along. <laughs> it's a, it's yes. The problem is learning stuff. Um, and uh, we, ha that we have very little literature on the process of learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, I like the work also. It's looking, as you mentioned, almost like the contrast of explicit versus implicit learning. Uh, yeah. Liza Feinstack's doing some interesting work in that area. And I love this uh, approach of what works for whom. I think it has to be that yes. complex. It could get even that complex yes. as, you know, probably not finding the silver bullet, but having a sense of the multiple silver bullets that could work for individual children and what yeah. that combination looks like. It's very complex. And I think we're often limited by as humans by our own understanding about these complexities, right? Like thinking, mm. you know, um, once we get into three and four dimensional space, it can be very tricky. But mm. I, I like, mm. I think that makes a lot of sense to think about the intervention yeah. work and the adults and the functional outcomes. So we're getting close to the end of our discussion. Yeah. I always ask two questions of every guest and I wanna start with the first one and that is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or what direction are you taking that's really getting you excited? Well, I am interested in doing some stuff on um, what we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to develop some online games oh. uh, for looking at uh, well, particular comprehension, which is where I started looking yeah. at language comprehension in kids. So, so we're playing with that idea, but it's, um, and the idea would be if we can get things that work online, we'll be much easier to see large numbers of kids, but we have to make things fun. We have yes. to make things into fun games. So we're working with a platform in the UK called Gorilla, which has been developed uh, and is used massively now by psychologists for running psychology experiments, but which makes it easier to sort of set up experiments for kids. So that's fun. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, the, I, the other thing I've, I've moved much into, as you may know, is sort of um, the reproducibility crisis and, and methods. Uh, and, and I spend a lot of my time now um, giving talks on how we can overcome um, problems with uh, the limitations in methods that increasingly, certainly in psychology and in biomedical science, are recognized to have really held us back, I think, or, or misled us over the years. And as a psychologist, I'm getting really interested in how human psychology affects how we do science. So we have things like confirmation bias, where um, it's much easier to interpret and remember information that agrees with our preconceptions whereas to be a good scientist you should be questioning your preconceptions so i think there's this wonderful conflict between how you, how science should be done and how it actually is done which has a lot to do with human psychology so that's another direction i'm sort of veering off into when i get free time which i don't yeah. very often <laughs> Oh, I love that. And that's actually right in line with what I was thinking about, how we're limited by our human capacity to do science, yes. right? Like we yeah. have to do it through our filter of being human. Yes. And I think, I mean, I think it's particularly difficult for people working in a field like speech language pathology, where people have the best of intentions and you come up with a new intervention and you want to help children and you want it to work. And it can be really quite difficult then if you do a trial and you find that it's not effective um, you have to really, and I think that, you know, it, it's really hard to do trials that show things are effective. Um, and so I think uh, it's, it's difficult to combine being a caring, compassionate practitioner sometimes with being a sort of really rigorous scientist. But I think we, we need people to do that because otherwise we'll just carry on doing things that we hope work, which don't actually work. Absolutely. Wow. Yep. I've been interested a lot in implementation science, and I think it's a similar, in some ways, trying to tackle this in a, in a slightly different way of thinking about what are the factors that help research that is replicable into practice and, yes. and how to create science that maybe it takes into account the clinical practice barriers. Um, yeah, you know. and I think I think the other thing is that you know you have to be careful that you sometimes get the feeling that researchers feel very superior and come yes. along and sort of want to hand down to clinicians some great truth, without really realizing how it is in in real practice. So I think it's a two-way street. Uh, but I think when I first started out in the field as a full-time researcher, uh, I mean I trained as a clinical psychologist, but uh, I, I've done research for most of my career. Um, 
And I had this belief that if you did some research and published it, that the practitioners would somehow pick it up by osmosis. And I was quite shocked to find that things that I thought were well established were not sort of generally understood by uh, practitioners who, of course, don't have time, energy, whatever, to be reading the literature. So there is a huge need for this sort of interchange. Absolutely. Now, my next question is, what is your favorite book from childhood? I have to ask this because, of course, as a, a person who loves language and literacy, I'd love yeah. to know if you have a favorite book from childhood or now even. Well, um, I was thinking about this. I mean, I was an, very much the, an avid reader. I was a real bookworm as a child, uh, but probably not terribly discriminating. And in fact, I came from one of those homes where we didn't have many books, but we had a really good library. Mm. And so I remember trailing down to the library to get books. But I was thinking one of my favorites probably was Little Women. Oh, yes. Which I think is quite nice because it, I mean, it, the great thing about books, of course, is they take you into this completely different world. And I have no understanding of the background of Little Women and, you know, the American Civil War yes. or anything else. Yes. But I liked the women and I liked <laughs> Joe, of course, who was the sort of bookworm. Um, and so that sort of stayed with me. And I think that was a great book for girls because it was a book about friendships and sisterhood and but also just being sort of resilient and tough and doing what you needed to do. Which So it was good, good role models, but not too syrupy. Probably if I went back now, I think it is syrupy. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's but a big one here in Boston, as you can imagine. So, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a great um, book. And in adulthood, I mean, I, I've. I discovered, as many adults did, I discovered J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, and I think the woman's brilliant. I mean, yes. I just found that I read that once on one of those on a plane when I had a long plane ride and I was a bit tired, and I just went straight through. And, I mean, so much of what she writes about is capturing, you know, the battle of good and evil and many things that we now sort of see in politics, but also, you know, journalism going wrong. Uh, although it's a children's book, it, it, again, the themes are really... Uh, very universal and important so um but i do read grown-up stuff too so um i like margaret atwood and mm -hmm. you know i, I like uh, a quite a diverse range of authors i also try to make sure i read too because i think it's it's so important to keep up on reading and and, and i i also loved harry potter i was one of those people that actually stood in line at midnight when the books came <laughs> out with the i was yeah. actually in my 20s at that time and I was standing there with, you know, 13 year olds. <laughs> I didn't have a kid with me. So, <laughs> and I would go home and read it all night. So I agree. Harry Potter is an amazing uh, series and still is so, so relevant to issues yes. nowadays. Yeah. Uh, well, thank yeah. you, Dorothy. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I can't wait to get this out to the listeners. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for having this uh, whole series. I mean, I, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. You seem to be on fire in terms of <laughs> podcast <laughs> it's an interesting hobby isn't it <laughs> well long may it flourish and uh thank you best of luck with it thank you so much check out www.seeherespeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast including for example the podcast transcript research articles and speaker bios you can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.